Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack, pre-A, VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership with an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Hello, everyone. Hi, Gil. Hi, Amir. Hello. Amir, thank you so much for doing this. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. Awesome. So we have a fantastic session for you today. Uh, Welcome back to Angular Insights. Gil and I are thrilled to be joined by Amir. He is a head of product for Twitter developer platform and a venture partner in innovation endeavors. So this session will be a fireside chat. Gil will give a quick overview and background on Amir. Then we will have an interactive Q&A discussion with Amir. And with that, thank you everyone again. Gil, take it away. Cool, thanks, Anne. And again, Amir, thanks so much for doing this. So Amir Shavat, I have known Amir or known of Amir for many, many years. And then recently in the past year, like every other company that I thought was really interesting, it turned out that Amir was already an angel investor in that company. So our paths have kind of crossed in a number of ways. I I, I don't want to date you, but you actually worked at Converse from 2000 to 2003 which was one of the names, the legendary names of Israeli high tech. After that, you've worked and founded a bunch of startups, which probably don't need a lot of a, a, a lot of discussion. And then you ran Middle East at Africa, EMEA for Azure for Microsoft, 2010 to 2011. So pretty early in the cloud adoption cycle. Developer relations at Google, 2011, 2015. Developer relations at a, a small company called Slack from 2015 yeah. to 2018. VP product and developer experience, Twitch in 20. 18, 2019, which interestingly you joined post Amazon acquisition. So it was already like quite a big company must've been at that point. Then you, I guess, co-founded, I guess, a company called Reshuffle, right? So we'll talk a little bit about what was Reshuffle, but that was acquired by Twitter. And then from April of this year, actually, you've been head of product and developer platform. So you'll explain to us what that title means at Twitter. And you're also a venture partner at Innovation Endeavors, one of my favorite VC funds. It's sort of like the Eric Schmidt fund, but they do some very interesting tech work. So if, if a founder, if we, for some reason, say no to your company, you should talk to Innovation Endeavors as well. But Amir, again, thank you so much. And maybe one one question or one obvious place to start is, can you tell us a little bit about the, you know, what was Reshuffle? What was that story? How did you end up at Twitter? And then what exactly is your role at Twitter today? Okay. So as you can see from your story, and thank you for introducing me. So I've been a one-trick pony for most of my career. I've been building developer tools and developer products. And when I started Reshuffle, we talked about what is, where are the pains of developers? So basically we wanted to keep the theme of like building an awesome developer platform. And Reshuffle tried to solve the problem of enterprise integrations. So enterprise developers living in um, big corporates have a lot of pain for creating workflows and integrations. There's multiple systems, there's multiple data exchanges, there's multiple auth that they need to deal with a lot of crap. And what we wanted to do with Reshuffle is reduce the amount of uh, things that you need to deal with. So we created an easy way to do authentication authorization, an easy way to transform data, and an easy way to programmatically work with all these APIs. Um, And six months ago, one of our big clients at the time decided to give us an offer we couldn't refuse, and we joined Twitter. Now, my role 
I'm now the head of product for the Twitter developer platform. So we have a big business of working with social listening companies, anything from big, very, very big companies to small companies who use the Twitter API to listen and interact uh, with the public conversation on Twitter. So I'm, if it's broken, it's on me. That's my role. I'm the head of product. Awesome. I was particularly excited about doing this session because uh, I used to be in this world a long time ago. I used to work on Facebook's MP Start team, which was about working with developers, specifically on, on mobile app startups. So I was really excited when you agreed to join. So since you've done this role in a number of big companies, could you talk a little bit about the differences of how this role kind of is shaped at, at these various big tech companies. Yeah, it's funny. When I started doing developer relations, it, it was in a small startup and we open sourced our solution and a community emerged. And I wanted a promo at the time. They say, we're not going to give you a promo. What we're going to give you is a new title and you're going to deal with all of these developers. And since it was a very unknown proficiency to work with developers, external developers, only the big companies, only like Microsoft and Google and Amazon were doing that at the time. And now everybody's doing developer products and developer relations. The difference is the way you think with, uh, and interact with developers. I think with Microsoft, at least when I started, it was all, it was called evangelism. So it was like, hey, here's our amazing APIs. Here's our amazing tools. So it was a broadcast role. You had to create content and broadcast and your job was to make as many developers get convinced to use your products. At Google, it was more of, it was called advocacy, which was bi-directional. We started working with developers and we, it was more high touch working with developers, onding, onboarding them on Android, onboarding them on Chrome, onboarding them on the cloud. So it was much more collaborative. And at Slack, I think it was more of a community experience. So it was building together with developers, listening to developers, building the API and our capabilities in a collaborative way with, so for example, we put our roadmap outside in the open so people could look at it and give us feedback. And that was pretty useful and pretty innovative because it was the first time where we used a, like an actual product board and exposed it to the audience. So that was a great experience. I started there when we had 50 developers on our waiting list and left when we had 250,000 weekly active. So uh, I had here before I started that. You, you talked about these, you know, broadcast evangelism and community as the three sort of different approaches that those different companies had. Is that a cultural thing or was it like strategic? Was, was there a rationale behind those differences? I think it's a cultural thing. I also, I also think it's um, a size. So a small startup like Slack at the time, we were about 80 people. We were struggling. We, we didn't know which API to build. Some of the API endpoints that we built, we actually built wrong. And we had to, I have a session about building APIs that suck less. And some of the APIs, we actually built it then wrong. And then through feedback from the community and through iterations, we, we built uh, the right product. When you're Microsoft or Google, you have much less flexibility to do community building. You have a more funnel towards building, which is different, which is not community-led. It might be product-led. But at, at Slack, and now what we're trying to do at, at Twitter is very much to be a community-led building. And you can see that 
Jack has also tweeted about this. So like building in the community is, I think, going to be a thing moving forward. Very cool. Yeah. When I was at Facebook community, it was the the biggest aspect that we focused on and, you know, both doing that online and also through events, which obviously is a, it's a bit different now, but very interesting to hear how the different companies approach it differently. So one thing that I also wanted to ask you is why now? Why is now an important time to build developer products and focus on community outreach? So it's interesting. My job became from the, the least sexy job to being extremely sexy in the Silicon Valley. Like everybody's trying to build a developer platform. Everybody's trying to build a developer tool. And I think the key here is that software is eating everything. Like we're seeing, and I think Corona had a big impact on that. We moved to do our shopping online. We moved to do our social online. We're doing this meeting. I used to do this meeting in person, seeing my audience, but now it's all online. So we're seeing more and more need for software. So the role of an engineer, whether it is a hardcore engineer or any type of other engineer, is becoming more and more critical. And tech companies are becoming more and more important. If you look at Fortune 500, now it's basically a tech index. So if you look at that and you think of this user, which is a developer, which is becoming more and more important, the tool set that they have is still very rudimentary. The way they, they work is very complex. They have the need to deal with a lot of things that are not super creative. So there's a lot of need for disruption in the tools and collaboration around the developer and around the product lifecycle. This is becoming a very important audience that is making a big impact on the world very creative so it also ties into the creative movement that we're seeing and empowering this audience with dev tools and creating more productivity tools around it has an amazing infinite impact i think on the world that's what makes me excited very cool and as a follow-up to that where do you see this going like in the future like in 10 years what do you think this will look like so i think this is just the tip of the iceberg I think that like software will become uh, a major part of everything we do in life, whether what you see it now in cars and in schools and in finance, everything that we do is going to be electronic and everything is going to be connected to software. So this audience will be one of the most important audiences in our future. And I think building the tools and services for this audience and making our velocity and improving software is going to be critical in 10 years as it is now or even more. On that note, we see a lot of companies, this may end up being off topic. I, I don't think it's off topic, but we see a lot of companies that are basically taking the developer playbook, but not for people you would think of as developers, right? These are no code builders. Can you talk about that? Do you have experience with that? Do you have thoughts on that? Have you seen people make missteps there? Even in our own portfolio, we have a number of companies that are no code building something or low code building something. And it's for a business person or a doctor. Even we have one that's doing this for doctors where doctors can make their own remote patient care pathways in a no code builder. They're basically developers now. They're just not using yeah. a normal development language. Can you talk about is, are you seeing that? Do you have thoughts on that? Yes. I think in 10 years, we'll all be developers, no matter what our proficiency is. We will form software to help us in our, in our day-to-day life, not just get not just be a user of software, but a creator of software. We will work with our voice interfaces around the world to make our life better. We will program workflows that work for us. And I think that will be, it's called the citizen developer. 
in many in enterprises, but I think all of us will become citizen developers. So I'm a big believer in the no code and low code movement. I think that software will become more and more personalized and at the edges, you need to have a person using that software, being able to modify it and personalize it to their own needs. And we'll start seeing that more and more in enterprises and it will move into everything that we do. So can, can I make that a little more tangible? Like what would your advice be? Imagine a person who was running the DevRel role very successfully for some kind of, I don't know, open source observability tool or something like that, right? Yep. Hardcore devs, command line interface, all that stuff. And all of a sudden he's now head of, I don't even know what the title would be, head of community, head of citizen DevRel for some no-code thing, right? What does he or she need to adjust in their thinking? What can they take with them from the previous job? What should they not take with them? How does that change once you're talking about normals as opposed to traditional devs? So I think that there's a big difference between low code and no code. Low code is reducing the amount of code that you need and making it easier for to, to do more with a little bit less code. That you're still dealing with the same developers. Once you move to citizen developers to drag and drop and building workflows in the UI way, you're no longer talking to developers. So it's a different audience. When you talk about low code and code solutions, you talk about things like five minutes to hello world. How fast can I get from zero to actually doing something very simple in command line or in my ID? With citizen developers is how fast can I realize business value? So I think the key here is using the same principles of like talking to your audience, understanding them, building strong empathy towards what they actually want to build and what they actually want to achieve, and then building the baseline of this developer portal, but it's actually a training uh, facility for your low code or no code engineers and using the same practices of like, how can we reach success within five minutes? How can I get proficient in the advanced path? So this is the flow of traditional DevRel. You, you inspire people to use an API or a platform. You educate them how to do it. You, you build the tools that enable them to do that. And you get feedback. So if this was an SDK, I would talk about the value of the SDK and the inspire. I would create a tutorial in the educate. I will create a profiler or a tool that enables you to, to do some runtime stuff and enable, and I will collect feedback. With the low code, you would do the same, only you would use a different language. You would use different terms. You do use more business terms to achieve business outcomes. Very cool. So we got a lot of questions around how to actually get started. I think it's very different if you're a company like Slack or like Facebook, where, you know, there's a ton of brand name recognition there, and it's probably a little bit easier. But when you're a startup, right, and nobody knows that you exist, so there's the challenge is a little bit harder, right? Or a lot harder. And so we got a great, great question from Ivan. He's a developer relations engineer for Croatia. And he was wondering, what community outreach techniques would you recommend uh, to new DevRel teams that are trying to build a community from scratch? Okay. So first of all, my first recommendation is don't do it. Community is an outcome of a good product market fit. So first make sure that you have a product that gives a lot of value and that you actually have people in the wild excited about your, your product. 
You don't need to have a community. You can belong to a third-party community. Owning your own community is probably a second stage. At Slack, we had $3,000 of a budget in the first year, and we didn't have headcounts for a community person. So what we did is that we hacked our way into third-party communities. We went to uh, the Amazon developer community and said, hey, this is how you build a Slack bot on Amazon. And then we went to uh, Google and we did a session of like, hey, this is how you do on Google Cloud, build integrations into Slack. So basically looking at where your audience is right now and going to their community is a much more affordable way of doing things. In general, I would not start with a community activity. I would start with a content play. So what does it mean? It means that everyone all the time is creating content about the product, about the SDK, about the API. I had a good session with the Netlify team. They're a great startup around developer tools. And they said that they put in their contract that everyone needs to create content and, and be an advocate. So I think I would start by creating a lot of content and making sure the onboarding experience is awesome and that the product provides a lot of value. And only in the second or third year, actually own my own community. Very interesting. Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it. And I think Gil has a follow-up, actually. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about the role of sort of social proof in these communities. And I think we're seeing, obviously, social proof matters in many ways. These ecosystems are actually fairly small, right? I think we're seeing a lot of fairly cheap efforts to create social proof of, oh, so-and-so is an investor and this is an investor or whatever. But what's the role of social proof? How should founders think about social proof? How much of their energy should they be spending on making sure that the right person is either an angel investor or a user or a reference customer? How much of it is like the, the long tail versus I need to get the cool kids using this before it really matters? For us at Slack, social proof proved to me to be very, very successful. One of the strategies that we did was to go, instead of doing like a lot of community activities, we went and targeted top brand partners to do social proof with. So every time we did an integration with a big company, with a big name, we saw a spike of developers actually going and using our product. We called it Lighthouse Wins. So like it shows the lights to all the other developers. An example would be when we integrated our first integration with Salesforce, we did a lot of noise on Max. Everybody was talking about it. It was a crappy integration. It wasn't useful at all, but it created so much social proof it created so much, such a spike in our developer portal, it was useful. And then we improved that actual integration. It became a very useful integration. But telling developers what's good and how good looks like is very important. One of the common misconceptions I hear about all the time about platforms is we will build it and they will come. That's the biggest, fattest lie in our industry. It's we will build it. We will tell them what to build. They will ignore us. We will work really hard to provide value. We will work with several top partners and then people will start to come only when you provide the value and provide a lot of social proof. How does that relate to concepts of buzz? What is buzz? How do you create buzz? People talk about it. And I want to ask you about brand in a second, but let's focus on buzz. Buzz is hard. Buzz is magic. It's something that happens when you try to do it, but not necessarily. It's it's a combination of product market fit 
and being at the right moment at the right time and having well-connected people can generate that buzz. Platforms like uh, Product Hunt really help. So even if you're an indie developer somewhere or you're just starting, you could put something on Product Hunt and it will blow up. And that's buzz, what everybody's talking about to you. It's a distinction between the content that you create and the channels you use to distribute that content. So sometimes you create a piece of content and it blows up on, on Hacker News, right? Because everybody's talking about that. And, and I've seen startups that are very effective in doing that. They just work uh, product hunt and Hacker News all the time. And that's a great growth strategy, but it's very hard to be proficient there if you just, if your first post is your first interaction in Hacker News, you will probably not generate buzz. You need to be a part of that Hacker News community and be a member of a product count for a long time in order to actually understand the mechanics of these channels and use their effect. I see this in my own little VC bubble where like there's a compounding effect and there's an effect of being part of the community that if you're reacting to other people's posts and you're present, then when you say something slightly controversial or something slightly intriguing, you get much more of a response than if I haven't tweeted for weeks and suddenly I'm like, here's my brilliant thought, like no one cares, right? It's more like, is it part of the conversation? And let's talk a little bit about the compounding effect of that, because I think for a lot of startup founders, they're overwhelmed, they're trying to ship product, they're trying to close big customers. And then we roll in as the VC and like, hey, you guys should be writing like two blog posts a week or whatever it is, right? And what are your thoughts on that? How important is that? So I think there's, you need to understand that bottom-up approach or product-led growth or content approach or a strategy. And you need to thoughtfully take that strategy, meaning that there's two ways to reach a company. You can go top down, you can go and talk to the CEO, you can have, you can fly between the companies and go and sell them. That's, that's a, like content there will be marginal. You don't need to, you need just a good salesperson and you need a good presentation. Or you can go bottom up approach, which is something that a lot of companies are doing right now, which is to convince everyone in the company to use the product and then turn that into revenue. You need to be thoughtful in choosing one or the other. Doing both is kind of hard and kind of defocused. So if a company is doing very well in top-down, is able to sell to the CEO, to the CTO, then they should do that and they should not create content because that's defocus. But if they want to go through a bottom-up approach and convince as many users and ambassadors within the company to use the product, which is usually a successful method when you do developer uh, products, then you need to create content and there's a compound effect. So every time you create content, it improves your SEO. It creates more long lasting engagement. You can link between pieces of content. So it takes about six months for a content strategy to be uh, effective and for you to learn it. But it's at the end of the day, it, it is a very effective strategy if you look at companies like Kong, uh, HQ, like Slack, and like many other developer platforms. So let, let's operationalize that a bit further. You, so you said a very intriguing number, which was six. Six months, right? So if I'm the CEO of a dev tool startup and I'm trying to figure this out, you're saying, okay, if I decide that I either want to go bottoms up or cannot go top down and therefore have to go bottoms up, I'm going to start my plan now and I've got six months before I see any return. Can you throw some more numbers on the whiteboard for us about like how many blog posts, who's writing them, usage? Like, and I, I, obviously 
every company is different, but what would you say would be a reasonable? We had this notion in one of the companies I worked for, like that said, everyone, everyone does support. Netlify told me that everyone does the advocacy. I'm, I'm a big subscriber of that. So if everyone in the team could create one post a month, you get about, uh, you get a few posts a week and that's a good cadence. So having one, two, three posts a week is a good cadence because it keeps people engaged. It keeps people understanding what you're trying to do. I, I really like tying the content into uh, something that is bigger and outside force. Right. So for example, building developer tools for TikTok creators, everything is now booming and now creating content that is tied into trends and themes is very useful. So you create, you start to create these themes and then you do two things. You put it on your own real estates and you choose the channels that you want to uh, distribute this content through. So you have Twitter and you have Product Hunt and you have dev.to and you have daily dev. So you can distribute this content through multiple channels. And then you start seeing which channels are effective to your audience because a game developer is very different from an enterprise developer in, and they have different channels that they listen to. So like optimizing your channels is something that you do as time pass. And you will see that as you generate more content, it will create uh, more traffic, both organic and both customers who are reaching out. It's important to have a call to action at the end of all this content, because if it's just content, then it, it's hard to measure. If you put a call to action, if you tie it into your developer portal, everything is a funnel. So this was our developer funnel at Slack. So we moved from developers being interested or aware. So we measure that by landing on our website and then building, actually converting to using a token, publishing an API in our marketplace, users actually using that app. So that app is useful and then monetizing. So. As you can see, every company will have a different funnel, but if you tie your content strategy into the funnel, you can really optimize the types of content that work and the channels that work. Okay. I want to stay practical for a second. So we're a 10 person startup. Yes. Everyone's writing something every month, right? So that's 60 pieces. Yes. That's not bad, right? What about the three devs who don't want to write and find this really annoying? What do they like to do? Can they write code samples? Can they answer questions? So in other words, they can't get out of it. They have to do it. It's I more say, important than shipping product. It's like they have to do it. So it, I, I don't like forcing people to do anything, but I like to say to them that this is a career opportunity. This is a life-changing event, working with external developers, enabling people outside. So if they just want to go to Stack Overflow and just answer a bunch of questions, that's amazing. If they want to do a Twitch stream and just code with the community. Now Microsoft is doing that. So they're basically doing sessions on Visual Studio live on Twitch. If that's their thing, they should do that. Not everyone is an author. You might just write code samples or answer technical questions online. Very cool. So you've spoken about developer relations and engagement from the big company to the individual developers in the wild. But what about the other way around? Do you have any insights for individual startups, open source projects, trying to get developer engagement from the enterprise developers trapped behind the enterprise restrictions, bureaucracy, et cetera? Yeah, that's a big pain in the butt. Open source helps a lot, at least from my experience. 
it removes a lot of friction from the process because if it's open source, a lot of the hurdles that you have to go through, like how can we make sure that your startup will survive in five years, which is a very common question that is asked by the financial team of every enterprise. This continuity and all of that. So there's multiple hurdles that enterprise put on you. They put business continuity, they put a standard and compliance, they put data sovereignty, they put security, like there's a, and, and they put like, what's in it for me? You need to tackle all these hurdles. You need to build documents that describe your, your standards. You need to describe your security processes. And then you need to create something that is very valuable that enterprise developers could use. If it's open source, they could use it without any permission from anyone. And that's an amazing value. But also if it's free, they could probably uh, use it without any permission. The problem is, what, how do you convert that to pay? How do you actually make an enterprise developer pay? I can give you an example. So this is not from DevTools. This is actually, again, from Slack. But we saw a pattern in the early days of Slack, which was crazy interesting. People were using it in big enterprises. A lot of people were using it. Like a thousand people were using it from a big company. And then one day, nobody was using it. And we freaked out. And we asked people, what happened? And they said, oh, security found out that everybody's using Slack. And they shut it down. Usually three days later, someone from procurement will call us to, to, to ask about an enterprise agreement. That's the magic of bottom-up approach. If everybody's using it and then security says, hey, you have to stop it. Now security is a blocking of actually innovation and everybody's mad at security. So now they have a very big incentive to get you in. So if you do an open source strategy and you are successful and everybody's using you, then doing a premium product is a very good way to extract value from enterprises. So you put the useful stuff in the open source and you put the enterprise useful stuff like auditing, ISO, like all the things that enterprise care about in the premium product. And then you convert people from the open source. We actually got a question that's a, a good follow-up for that. It's from Nimrod. He's the CEO of Cord based in London. And he's asking, do developer products have to be built on open source? And what are your tips for the ones that aren't? Heining Road, uh, no, he's a good guy. Great startup. You should check it out. <laughs> I think the key here is that it doesn't need to be open source. Open, there's open source like free speech and open source like free beer. So you don't have to build in the open. You don't have to be open source, but having a free experience helps a lot with product-led growth and with bottom-up approach. If you remove the hurdle of me needing to pay in order to realize the value, then that's a very, very useful approach. A good example would be Stripe or Twilio. So with Twilio, the key, the five minutes to a low world is actually to send an SMS. So developers use Twilio to send uh, text messages. You don't need to pay anything. You don't even need to put your credit card in order to send your first SMS. So if developers could realize the value of your product without paying, that's a very, very big value for you uh, in converting interested users to engaged users. Awesome. So we have a question from Uri, that's a follow-up to what you were previously talking about, like content generation, writing blogs, sharing it, et cetera. 
So what content can you create when the company is still in stealth mode and you are not really ready to, to fully feature the product yet? Do you create content? Do you hold off? What would be your advice there? It's a, it's a great question. The way I'm thinking about it is that every startup is tied into a domain. So for example, I'm doing developer productivity and connection between PMs and engineers. Okay, so that's my focus. My focus is I'm helping PMs work with engineers, or I do things like around team collaboration, like court. The key here is to start thinking about the domain and writing thought pieces on the domain. Why is integration between developers and PMs suck? What are the five major problems that you see in collaboration today? If you start thinking about your thought process, and I think ConGHQ did a, an amazing work there. They were an API gateway, but their entire conversation was about microservices and about the future of SOA, of service-oriented architecture. So they tied themselves to a bigger picture and they were very able to create thought-provoking pieces without talking about their products. And that's useful because you're actually adding a lot of value to a lot of people without being too salesy with your own products. So that's that would be my recommendation if you're still in stealth mode. Talk about the domain. Well, so we actually have an audio question. Nir Benson, who's the CEO and founder of Ziggy.ai, which on their website describes themselves as a personal assistant for development teams. Uh, pretty interesting area. Nir, go ahead. Hey, Amir, thanks for the great session. So my question is, in a bottom-up approach, how did you get uh, developers to trust Slack and integrate APIs into it before it was a brand, without involving their IT, their CISO, and those people? That's a great question. The, the key here was to create very, very simple APIs. It was called webhooks, and you can still use them. Webhooks are, are awesome. If you look at up until three years ago when I was still in Slack, that was the majority of the API that was used. So we gave a lot of capabilities. We gave buttons and we gave sliders and we, we actually built a lot of framework for developers, but the most used API was a simple incoming webhook and outgoing webhook. The ability to send a message into Slack and then the ability to read the message into Slack. Why is that important? Because enterprises are tuned to call in a, a webhook when you have pager duty. If something happens, you can configure PagerDuty to add a link and to call a URL. So we made it super easy for people to connect their PagerDuty into Slack. They just had to call a simple URL. We, we removed the authentication authorization. We removed a lot of the hurdles of enterprise integration and just gave you a simple URL inbound and outgoing. And that removed a lot of the hurdles of integration into the product. The second thing is that we created a lot of assets around our security, our compliance. So when developers ran into uh, problems, they could send their CISO or their compliance team to a portal that had all the content there around compliance and security. So we basically gave ammunition to the developers who loved us to work with their internal team and to convince them. So two things, make it super simple, remove a lot of the hurdles around authentication, authorization, connect to SSO is super important. If you do these, enterprises will have less hurdles and create content around 
how secure you are and what's your standards and compliance. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. But my question is to love you, for example, they need to integrate pager duty into it and they may not feel comfortable doing so, you know, before and. It's a hard problem because especially when there's data involved, how can they trust you with the data? And the key here is to, it's a leap of faith and it comes back to Gil's point around a social proof. So if you put on your website, your top partners and the companies who are actually using you and give them as reference, that could help a lot. By the way, social proof works everywhere. I had a startup that just did reference check on me with other founders that I invested in. So if you're getting developers to say, hey, I don't know if I can trust you, say, yeah, that's understandable. Let me connect you to other developers who have used this product and you can talk to them about your experience. They're developers just like yourself. And you can actually do content like interviewing developers. Look at how Wix used our API, right? And now Wix is a known brand and they're, if they're willing to talk about this, this will help reduce a lot of the, of the anxiety that developers might have with your product. But the first ones are very hard and you need to do a lot of convincing and finding someone who really, really needs your product and is willing to do that leap of faith. Got it. Great answer. Thank you so much. I have a little bit of a follow-up question to that. So how would you recommend marketing to developers? Everyone talks about authenticity and how developers really respond to that. And meanwhile, from my experience when I was at Facebook, the program, we really emphasize the community aspect, the support, the benefits, the events. But ultimately, our core focus was on furthering Facebook's product integrations, right? And having the developers part of our community do that. So how would you think of authenticity in this and using that to market to developers? So I think developers hate to be marketed to. When they see a marketing person, they usually run away screaming. So the way I do it is I'd like to have all my developer relations people uh, be engineers or citizen engineer, they need to use the product and tell me where it sucks in the interview. And if they tell you that, no, this is an awesome API, it does, doesn't have any problems, they wouldn't get the job. They need to tell me what are the broken windows, what are the problems, what are the big challenges that they had using the product. Because I think advocacy is very important because it, it's bi-directional. The best marketing you could do is a developer giving you feedback and then you getting back to them and say, hey, Based on your feedback, we improve this product. And now they'll be your biggest advocates. So authenticity is not just a thing. It is being a member of the community rather than owning community. Telling developers, yes, this is broken. We're working on it. Uh, rather than saying, this is as designed. This is working with developers to seek their feedback on betas. This is building out in the open. So I created not a few weeks ago. I tweeted about my thoughts about the Twitter developer platform. I shared what is what I think is broken and I asked people for their feedback. That is the type of conversation that you need to have if you want to be not marketing, but engaging with, with developers in a positive way. If they think that you're marketing to them, they will probably go somewhere else. Very cool. I, I wish I had listened to this session uh, four years ago. <laughs> Would have been very helpful. 
We have a question from Nuno Moreno. Nuno, do you want to just tell us where you're from and what company you're with? Hi, Gail. My name is Nuno. Yeah, I'm from Portugal. We're a fully remote distributed team. I work for WayData. I'm the second non-technical person in the team, and I'm working with community. Would you say that dance and data scientists would be similar? And we're trying to push our open source content, great insights in terms of like recycling content and trying to be that tip that I'm going to push on my team members to be building or creating content more regularly. I think that's pretty awesome. But how do you address these people when you you feel a little bit like an outsider from the, to begin with? So how do you address an audience like data scientists that you're not a data scientist, right? That's exactly. the question. Yeah. So what, what I found is that data scientists are, or researchers are very different than developers in the way, in the tools that they use. They're very, very tool savvy, but they use very radically different tools. So for example, at Twitter now, we have a track for data scientists and researchers that is separate from the developer tracks. And the key there is that they want to see data sets. Instead of an API, they want big data sets. The, the most requested thing that, they, that I hear from re researchers is give us a data set that correlates to a certain query. We can give you the query. We would love to give you the query, but we don't want to run and work with all these uh, complex APIs. So first thing is to understand your audience really well, to understand the tools that they're using, to understand the jargon that they're using, to understand uh, the pains in their day-to-day. -day. Now that you're building and understanding this audience, you can build the tools and services that you need. You can build them you can connect to the tools that they use. You can use the language that they're using. And the other way to do that is to hire really, really good people who are subject matter experts with data scientists. Twilio did this really, really well by hiring people who are superstars in their developer community. So instead of hiring people who will become advocates, they hire people who are already advocates in the community and turn them into a Twilio advocates. So find the person who is the most active and vocal and awesome person in the, in the community that you're trying to target and hire them. All right. Thank you very much. Of course. In terms of some of the GitHub repos and other metrics out there, we see founders talking about stars and issues and forks and all of these GitHub metrics that they what is your view on all of these metrics? Is it useful, not useful, depends? It's, it's useful if it's the right metric to track. It's like when I was a founder, I used to look at my Google Analytics or whatever analytics I used and look at something that moved really, really up and to the right and go to my VC and show them that. The key here is like, can you say that this is the hardest metric to move? So for example, GitHub issues, is a good metric because if it's external, so if a lot of developers are opening and engaging a lot with GitHub issues, that means that they're a lot, in, a lot more engaged. Starring is a lot less engaged activity. I can get a lot of people to star my project, but they wouldn't use it. Active usage, if you can, it's hard with open source projects, but if you can actually show me that people use this on an ongoing basis, that's an, a great metric. Returning users, 30-day active, and also things that are built on top of your platform. 
are also super, uh, super important. So if you're building an SDK, tell me how many stars you have. Tell me how many issues you have. Tell me how many customers you, you know or think are in production with your SDK. Tell me how many customers are paying for this. So the, the hardest metric is usually the most useful. I actually think that issues, if developers are interacting in a live way with a project, that's an amazing signal. We actually had a, a discussion around this on Monday at a board meeting with a very early stage company. They're sort of a developer centric company with an enterprise grade offering as well. And it's fully open source, fully open core. And they also have a hosted cloud version because they feel like that's an important way of getting the customer. And I, I think that's right. But the debate is what data do we collect? In other words, do we collect nothing because we're good citizens of the open source community and you just get our code with nothing? Do we collect everything? Do we default turn these things on, off? What's your, what are your thoughts on ins instrumentation, how to instrument, how to get these leads? Because if you, you know, obviously if you release code with no instrumentation at all, you got nothing. Right. So, so yeah. if you release too much, you can piss people up. How do you think about these questions? So yeah, there was a big pushback on developer tools that are, were open source, but were pinging the source to get data. And that's a risk. If you're telling the developer, hey, this is totally open source and you should use it. And then the package sends information to the developer that could be construed as, as being evil. What I usually recommend developers to do is to have a lot of value on their owned and operated real estate. So you have an open source product, it's all in GitHub, you can get all of that. But if you want to get additional resources, if you want to get the tutorials, if you want to get updates, give developers reasons to go to your own destination and to register there and to continue to engage there. So for example, I would say opening issues eh, will go in GitHub, but also surface on your dev site. New content that you create, new tutorials will be on your dev site. Support could be on your dev site. Get developers to have a lot of value on your destination sites for them. And then you can continue to build engagement and bring them value, but also track how many of them actually use the product. You can also do social listening around like how many developers are talking about you on Twitter. How many questions do you have in Stack Overflow? At the end of the day at Slack, what we looked at is developer using the product and users of Slack actually using that product. So how many of these solutions actually benefited Slack users? And we're doing the same analysis now in Twitter, where I'm looking at like how many Twitter users are actually engaged with API calls called from developers, like automated tweets and stuff like that. So if you can derive the hardest uh, measurement that is closest to your value proposition, then that's the best metric. And with open source projects, it's hard because you don't want to piss a lot of developers. There's no gold solution. There's workaround and derivatives values. If you need top down, it's different, right? If you yes, top down is like how many accounts, what's their status, how have they converted with bottom up? You need to look at it as a funnel. How many developers downloaded the project? How many of them landed on our website and looked at the enterprise product? How many of them have registered? How many of them have paid? If you need the leads to get the conversations going, right, then your calculus might be a little different in terms of trying to collect 
or ping or something, right? I mean, you can, there, there must be a way to be upfront about it. Say, look, you know, this by default is set to ping home, but here's how you undo it, right? Yes, you could do it. It's, and if, you, if you're front and center open about it, like our VC told us to do it, then I, I would actually use that humor and put it on our website. Hey, our VC told us that we need to measure. We're putting this. This is how you remove it. That would be like a easy, fun, transparent way right. to to do that. But I would not like put it as an undocumented feature. Interesting, because we we actually we talked to a, past, a company recently, not a portfolio company, but their their strategy was open core enterprise, where in it's completely open core, so you can actually remove it yourself, but you have to go take it out yourself. So this is the type of things that go into Stack Overflow or Hacker News about how that product sucks because it tracks you. So you could do it and like everything else, as long as you don't get caught and get a lot of bad press about it. But you think you would get bad press for that, even if it's... If you're tracking a lot of my usage as a developer and it's an open source product, I would be pissed. I see. But this founder was saying, hey, l- listen, it's, they can delete the code. And I was like, I don't know. It's perceived as shady, but what you're saying. It is. It's like... In the early days of Android, we had game developers who were taking your contacts and selling them on black markets. Now they asked permission to take your contacts. So it was basically legit, but it wasn't legit, right? Because it was abusing the the power. I think giving an open source project with tracking capabilities on anything that you do is slightly abusive of power. Very interesting. So up next, we have Avi. Joining us, he is a CEO of Weaver AI, and he is based in San Francisco. Avid, the floor is yours. Thanks, Anne. Hey, Amir, great discussion. As Anne said, my name is Avi, and I was wondering, as the community grows, let's say if you have your own developer community in the later stages of a company, do you see the value of uh, DevRel or the product teams to chime into or keep a tab on external communities or third-party communities? And how often have you seen that? You should always try to engage with third-party communities. It's a great, great growth tactic. And it usually you get to interact with users that you wouldn't be interacting in within your own community. The problem that you have with only engaging with your own community is that you're preaching to the choir. You're talking to users who are advocates and love your product. You don't talk to the users who have chosen not to use you or don't know about you. So I think that you need to always communicate with third-party communities in order to get their feedback, understand why they're, why they're using or not using or aware or not aware, and getting them to move to your community if possible. So I think like engaging with and outreaching to third-party communities is something that you always need to do. Great, thanks. So I know we're getting close to time, but I have one like pragmatic question for you. So what is your recommendation for like the, especially since a lot of stuff is online now, what is your recommendation for the online platforms to interact and engage with the developers? For context at Angular, we now use Slack. We used WhatsApp before. I know a lot of people are on Discord. You know, there's some of it on Reddit. So it's a bit, fragmented, but in, and I know you've worked at Slack, so <laughs> there might be a bias, but what is your advice or thoughts on like the quote, unquote best online tools and platforms to engage with developers? So I actually think that Slack is not a very good community tool. It's a good 
enterprise communication tool. It's not a community tool. It doesn't have, it doesn't give you ability to, for example, um, moderate content, which is critical in, in open communities. It is a good tool to have a small set of high-end developers. So if you're talking to a thousand high-end developers, top enterprises, then Slack is a great tool where you, there's no need for moderation. You will not get toxicity. Everybody knows everybody's email and that's okay. There's a lot of things that are given in Slack that are not, that are more towards uh, business communication. If you're doing an API that is for a million developers and let's say you choose something that might have some more toxicity than others, I would say that like crypto still has some few toxic people, not a lot, very, very few, but you, you might want to moderate there. Then you choose tools that are more, more inclined to moderation and community safety. I think the Discord is a great product. I think Circles is a great product. There's tons of developer-focused products. I think engaging in uh, open platforms like Reddit, like Twitter is a great platform, but it serves different purposes. So for example, if I do a Twitter engagement, it's more about broadcast. We initially, one of my startups started to do support through Twitter, and that was a horrible failure because it's all public and it's all, it convoluted your message. So it's all about Twitter should be on broadcast. You need to choose the medium for the things that you want to do. Slack is great for one-to-one support, for example, because you can create a direct message and talk to people directly there. Basically, that's my recommendation. There isn't a golden bullet here. There's tons of tools and there's tools in the making. Circle, I'm hearing a lot of good things about circles. I'm hearing a lot of good things about dots. Amir, thank you so much for doing this. We're basically at time. I am not going to plug Twitter because most people sort of know about it by now, but I am going to plug uh, you as an angel. Uh, you're an awesome angel. Every founder I know who's worked with you is absolutely thrilled. And I'll plug Innovation Endeavors as well, even though they're a competitor, they're a fantastic fund and they do great work. So we'd love to co-invest with you in the future again. Um, and thank you. Thank you so much for doing this, Amir. As everyone can see, there's a wealth of experience here. And I think there's a lot of founders struggling with these issues. I'm sure you'll have plenty of inbound from this and from all the other sessions you do with other people. So thank you so much. This was a, a fun conversation, a lot of uh, good questions uh, and looking forward to doing a lot of investment with you. Awesome. Thank you so much.